This morning we are finishing up our journey through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, uh, the book we know as Philippians. Four short but power-packed chapters filled with what it means to be gospel-saturated people, not just in our minds, but also in our hearts, and therefore in our actions, in our behaviors, in our attitudes. As I was preparing for teaching today, I was remembering one of my favorite Bible stories as a kid. Remember, the Bible stories you learn as a kid, and even now if you think about them, some of them are just crazy, the things that happen. So one of my favorite Bible stories as a kid was the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you're familiar with the story, are three guys who refuse to bow down to the king of Babylon. Uh, and their punishment is they're thrown into a fiery furnace. Remember the story? Uh, and they're basically like, well, if that's what you got to do, then that's what you got to do, right? That's how I'm picturing this as a kid. Like, you got to throw us in there, then throw us in there. We'll see what happens. And they make these crazy statements like, hey, our God can rescue us from this, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to serve him. Remember this? And they're thrown into this furnace, uh, and nothing. the ropes around them are burnt off, but nothing else happens to them. So they turn the fire up hotter, and they look in there, and it says they can see four people, not just three. It's this crazy story. So I've always wondered, and maybe you can help me figure this out, or maybe we'll figure it out together a little bit today. How do you become a Shadrach, Meshach, or an Abednego? How, when faced with a situation like that, do you say, hey, God can save me, and if not, that's okay, I'll serve him too. That's not language that's familiar to me. As your pastor, I wish it was. I wish I could stand in front of you and say, that's what I would do too. But it seems pretty far-fetched for many of us to think of. So, Bible stories are, are crazy, right? But let's think in practicalities. We, saw, we just sang the song, It Is Well, which is a, a modern version of an older hymn that many of you are familiar with, uh, which is called It Is Well, by a writer named Horatio Spofford. Uh, and Horatio Spofford's story is incredible. Maybe you know this. Horatio Spofford was a fairly wealthy Chicago businessman who lost nearly everything in the great fire of Chicago. And shortly thereafter, he put his wife and his kids on a boat to England uh, for some time away. And the boat crashed into another boat in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, And his wife and his kids uh, were together, but uh, ultimately were separated uh, amidst the crash. And all of his kids died. And he got a cable or a telegram or whatever from England, from his wife, it said two words, rescued alone. And as Horatio Spofford set sail for England to be reunited with his wife, having lost everything he knew in this fire, having lost all of his kids, he wrote down some words, which became the lyrics to the song, It Is Well. Whatever my lot God has taught me to say, it is well. Forget Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before. How do you get to be a Horatio Spofford? How do you say something like that in the midst of unthinkable loss and unthinkable pain? This morning as we look into Philippians chapter 4, we begin to get a glimpse at what's going on in the lives of these people and some hope for regular folks like us to take steps towards this kind of life. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. 
and we will read it together. Philippians chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 4. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have a lot. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. There's a lot of famous words in there that we've heard before, right? If you've been in the halls of the church for any length of time, you've heard some of these things that I've shared before. And perhaps some of these things have been said to you somewhat tritely as someone has patted you on the back and said, it'll be okay. And so my prayer for you this morning is you won't hear it like that from me. And that we will discover that the peace that Paul talks about is not some emotion that if you're a good Christian, you'll have. But is the very embodiment of Jesus himself. Who is offered to us. His blood is poured out as a, as a, as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. By his wounds we are healed. We have been given peace, the prophet Isaiah says. This is what is offered to us. That peace is Jesus. It's not simply an emotion. So, what's going on here is the Apostle Paul is speaking to the church of Philippi. We've been saying this throughout this whole, this whole series. Uh, there's some unrest that's going on in this church. Uh, there's some way in which they're facing opposition from the outside, uh, in which the church is struggling because people are, are persecuting them or coming against them. There's suffering going on. And in the midst of these trying times, these, this fiery furnace of sorts for the church at Philippi, Paul really has two pleas for them. One is an external plea, and one is an internal plea. The external plea is, listen, let your gentleness be evident to everyone. And the internal plea is, don't be anxious about anything. And what's really going on here is an external and an internal reality of this bigger idea that is peace. So let's talk about these two two realities Paul's saying. Externally says, listen, let your gentleness be evident to everyone. This word gentleness is a fascinating word. Uh, It means forbearing. It means being fair, being considerate, compassionate, giving someone the benefit uh, of the doubt. It's used in opposition, in contrasting language in 1 Timothy chapter 3 to someone who fights. Don't, don't fight, but instead be gentle. It's used in contrasting language in the book of Titus to someone who slanders someone else. They don't slander people, instead be 
gentle and considerate. And really what's going on with this language is it's a kind of a higher level of equity uh, in it. This is this idea of fairness by loosening the standards is really what it means. And so Paul is saying, hey, listen, stop being so uptight. Loosen the standards a little bit. Have a bigger picture. Give people the benefit of the doubt. And truth be told, this is really a word that is used not so much towards people in the inner circle, but towards people who are in opposition to you. And so the word is being used to those same people who are persecuting, who are coming against the church at Philippi. Paul is actually saying to the church, hey, listen, take it easy on them. Be gentle towards them. He's addressed the conflict that's going on in the church in the first two verses of chapter 4. And then he says, now, but be gentle to all. Which is the outside group of people who are coming against you. Now, think about our friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for a minute. As these people are throwing them into the fiery furnace. If, even if they truly did, and they obviously did. And even if we could come to that level of faith, truly believe that God would protect us, save us, rescue us, whatever it was. I probably would have choice words for the people who were doing this to me, right? There would be parting words from me to the people who were throwing me into the furnace. It wouldn't go unspoken. I would have something to say to them, right? Uh, you jerks. Maybe is a, is, a, is a start, but maybe it would be even more graphic than that, right? How dare you do this to me? And Paul is saying, hey, listen, people are going to do stuff to you, and you've got to just be gentle. It kind of is not something Paul has invented here, is it? These are Jesus' own words to his disciples at the Sermon on the Mount when he says things like, love your enemies. If someone slaps you on one side, turn the other cheek so they can strike you there. If someone wants to bring suit against you, give them your coat as well. There's this whole new different kind of ethic towards people who would oppose us that can't come simply because that's something I would choose to do but only comes if there's this true manifestation of peace in our lives. And then inwardly, he says, don't be anxious about anything. Now, I I need to give you a few caveats, especially as a human being whose whole adult life has struggled with anxiety. So if that's you, I'm right with you. These verses are sometimes very unfortunately used against people whose struggle is real to belittle them unknowingly. This is not Paul's heart. He's not saying, oh, you poor baby, you're struggling with anxiety. One day you'll grow up and know that Jesus loves you and you'll be fine. There is a such thing as chemical imbalances. There is a such thing as hereditary realities. Paul and the Bible are not making light of any of these things that would later be discovered. He simply is saying, in the midst of anxiety, there is an anchor you can find. He's not criticizing them for experiencing the anxiety. He's giving them something to hold on to in the midst of it. The word anxiety is fascinating. It's the Greek word merimenao, and it really means to be torn into pieces. And it comes from the, from the Greek word merimena, which means a part instead of the whole. And so in the anxiety reality, you have this, this understanding of, of the wholeness of oneself or wellness or the wholeness of one's view of the world being torn apart and, and, and almost an unnecessary focus on a part of it. And Paul says, instead, there's something that can be steadying for you. It's this thing he calls 
peace, it's the Greek word erinete, which literally means to join back together into the whole. Is this not beautiful language that Paul is using here? He says, listen, I get it. Life sometimes shreds us. There is something that can help piece this back together. It's a beautiful picture. And it's rooted in the Hebrew word for peace called shalom, which is not the absence of conflict, right? We talk about we need peace in the Middle East or peace uh, in the Korean Peninsula. And it's true, we would like to, for aggressions to stop and there to be peace. The, the, the Eastern words and concepts for peace is not the absence of conflict, it's the presence of wholeness and wellness, that everything is as it should be, that the whole is together and not shredded into parts. And so Paul is saying, peace is the thing we should be pursuing. There's an external reality that even towards our enemies, we are gentle. And an internal reality that even though times are really tough and tense, and in many ways we are pulled apart radically, there's something that can be a steadying anchor for us in the midst of it. Again, these words about anxiety are not new to Paul. He's pulling straight from the Sermon on the Mount again, where Jesus very famously says, flowers grow beautiful. Stop worrying about the clothes you want to wear. God will take care of you. Even birds, right? to let everyone in on, on a well-known secret, I don't like birds. And so this is, how I, this is how I interpret this passage. I'm not suggesting to you this is the proper interpretation, but it's too easy for me to pass up. Jesus says, even the birds find food in a nest. How much more will I take care of you? And I'm like, yeah, even the bird. There's only one good bird. Everyone knows that. It's an eagle. The rest of the birds are, thank you. (laughs) Jesus says, he's not drawing on a dislike of birds. He's drawing on Old Testament imagery where he says, in the kingdom of God, the sparrows find nests and a place to live. And Jesus says, how much more those who bear the image of God? And Jesus isn't just, you know, saying try things. He's telling them not to worry about food, shelter, and clothes. Basic human needs, right? These are intense things Jesus is calling people to. And he's saying there's something steadying in the midst of it. We get an idea of what's going on and how we pursue these things, what makes them possible, because at the climax of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, remember these famous words, so you should seek first the kingdom of God. And if you do, all these things will be given to you, added to you. And we begin to see that this peace that we're called to with external and internal manifestations is not some kind of behavior modification program. It's not something where, well, if I'm going to make God happy, I can't be anxious anymore. I've got to be this Christian rock most of which, by the way, is fake, right? It's not true. Behavior modifications are a facade. It's window dressing. It doesn't work. And over time, people will figure it out. But instead of behavior modification, what's really going on is a kingdom conflict. Jesus says, hey, which kingdom are you going to seek? And if you seek the one that I'm offering, you're going to find this kind of peace that doesn't force you to be consumed with what you'll wear or what you'll eat or what you the basic human existence. This peace that comes 
from kingdom. And so then the question gets turned to not only which kingdom will you follow, but then the very basic question, which I think is at the core of our entire lives, who gets to be king? If you get the right king, the kingdom is going to be good. And Jesus says, I invite you into my kingdom. Where as your king, I will provide for, all, for you all that you need. And Jesus says, if you seek first this kingdom, all these things will be added to you. And Paul picks right up on that. How do we know this? Because he makes this very emphatic statement right in the middle of saying, hey, let your gentleness be shown to everyone and don't be anxious about anything. He says almost like weirdly, the Lord is near. Did you catch that? It's weird, right? Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Well, this Lord is near stuff is is a kingdom language. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, when when Moses is about to give the fullness of the law to the people of God, living in the kingdom, it's here to, to come. This is what he says. What other nation is like Israel that their God is near them? And what he means is that there is a presence of God that is their protector, provider, sustainer, everything. The Psalms, if you read about the nearness of God in the Psalms, it is dramatic about understanding that even in the worst of times, it is the nearness of God that sustains his people. In Psalm 73, the psalmist writes, even when my heart and my flesh are ripped to pieces, God is near and he is my strength. Sounds like Horatio Spofford on a ship to England or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the edge of a fiery furnace. The nearness of God. And then if you get to the times of Jesus, all of the Gospels open up with this crazy statement about the kingdom of God has come near. What is going on? How is the kingdom of God suddenly near again? Because Jesus is here and he is the king. If the king is here, the kingdom is here. And the nearness of Jesus, again, is the most dramatic reality of the presence of God in the midst of his people. And we serve a God who didn't just show up on the scenes to be near his people, but became so near that he stooped into the mess of humanity. Think about the ways in which God became near to us in Jesus. It's what we celebrated by eating the communion meal together. It's the cross of Christ, which is the ultimate moment of the nearness of God to his people. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that he, became, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He became near, close, took this on for us. And two very dramatic things happen on the scene at Calvary. You remember these things? The first is, as Jesus is being crucified, he makes a remarkable statement to the people around him. He says, Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. Radical gentleness on the cross. Lowering the strict standard to offer forgiveness to the very people who were facilitating his death and demise. And then, Jesus on the cross gets to this moment of 
utter pain and agony. You remember this. It's the moment where he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's this moment of utter torment and torture on the cross. That Jesus experiences the loss of the nearness of God so that we could be brought near to God. The agony of the loss of the nearness to God is far worse than any of the, of the physical pain of the torture of the cross. So much so that it causes him to gasp and breathe his last. And radically in that moment, we are met with the, the full covenant truth of what it means to have a God who has come near, who is fully present who doesn't simply march through the city so everyone sees him, but instead draws near to you individually. Draws near to you in your plight and in your realities. And what we find is exactly what Paul says to us in Philippians chapter 4, that how we get to this level of peace is not by conjuring it up in our emotional in our emotions, as many of us have kind of been taught to do. But instead, turning to the God who has come near and experiencing Him for who He is. Does Paul say, the God of peace will be with you. It's not about a peace that you can conjure up in you, but about a peace that you can grasp who is standing Right next to you. A God who was willing to set aside equality with God so that he would come near to you. A God that was willing to take on sinfulness so that he could draw near to you. So much so that ultimately the writer to Hebrews would say that Jesus is our better hope by which we can draw near to God. Friends, if you are in the throes of it right now, this is not a trite statement to you. It is not a pat on the back and a let go and let God. It is a truthful statement from me to you that says, God is bearing it with you. He is present. It doesn't mean that if you're going to be a good Christian, you can just wish it all away and put on some fake being of peace and show everyone else how proper of a Christian you are and then God will be happy with you and maybe he'll take it away. But rather, it's, it's a person who is willing to say that the God of the universe loves me enough that he'll stand with me in the midst of my crisis. It's the God of the universe who enters the fiery furnace to make three become four. It's the God of the universe who enters the cross of Calvary to open up peace for everyone. It's the God of the universe who sits on a slow-moving ship to England with a dad who's lost all his kids and all he's worked for in the world and says, I'm with you. This is not a passage of scripture about getting rid of bad stuff. 
It's a passage of scripture about holding on to an anchor in the midst of chaos. Paul does not say, hey, you're feeling anxious, grow up. Here's what you do. You pray and you petition and you give God thanks and abracadabra, it's gone. And you got this peace that rises up and you're marching around good. Uh Uh-uh. He says, I get it. I'm in a prison. And these chains aren't leaving me. And yet, neither is God. And it's the only thing that can sustain us in the most difficult of times. It is the only thing that can give rise to this radical peace that Paul speaks about that passes any kind of understanding. It makes no sense for three dudes to not be stressed out about a fiery furnace. It makes no sense for a dad who's lost all his kids to be writing about the powerful death of Jesus and the nails, the rescue of Jesus and that whatever my lot is, I'll be fine. None of this makes it. It passes all understanding. The only thing that makes it sense is not a conjured up human emotion, but the very presence of God himself. Peace is not something you will feel. It is a God you will embrace. Paul will write later, or earlier, excuse me, to the Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And we always think, how to be good Christians? I've got to be better at loving and better. No, no, no. To be good Christians, you've got to submit yourself to the right king who himself is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. If you need these things in your life, you need Jesus, not some behavior modification. It's by knowing Christ. Paul's been saying this the whole time that we experience these radical things. Friends, I get it. I've grown up in the church where it's been sort of just subtly suggested that, well, you got to be better and better and better to make God happy and then good things happen to you. This is not the God I know. The God I know is the God who says, I will be near. That even in the most difficult of times, I'll come near, I'll be with you, I'll be a steadying anchor in the midst of chaos and crap. And I can't promise you it's going to go away, but I can promise you I will not go away. This is what Paul's talking about. And so then we ask ourselves, how on earth do we ever lean into this? If our only hope for this kind of peace is the presence of Jesus, how on earth do we ever lean into this? And what I want to suggest to you is you do it with your mind that leads to your heart that ends up in your life. Paul, in, in his letter to the Romans, I think very instructively reminds us that on the basis of Romans chapter 12, on the basis of the gospel, we should not be conformed to this world, but we should be transformed. How? By the renewing of our minds. And what he means is bringing the gospel and Jesus to bear on every circumstance and reality of our life. And he uses this M.O. in all situations of his life, in all his letters and writings to his people, and he's doing the same exact thing here. Did you catch it? Right? He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, think about these things. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, you think about those things. And he says, whatever is lovely or admirable, beautiful, Reflect on those things. And what he's really doing is taking us through this Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 process of transforming our minds. 
In the midst of utter craziness, what do you do? How do you find the anchor that is the nearness of God? You turn your mind to Him. It is a volitional choice. You have to choose it. It will not happen naturally for you. Think about the things He says. Think about what is true. What is the only thing that you know that is true? It's God. It's the Gospel. Now certainly there are other things in the world that are true, but they come out of this reality of who God is. What is the only thing you know that is noble? King Jesus. What is the only thing you know that is universally right? The gospel. Jesus. What is the only person you know that is completely pure? I love my wife more than anyone in the world. But my love for my wife is not always pure. The only one I know who is pure is Jesus. Paul is not simply saying, hey, find all the good things in the world to think about. He is saying in a beautiful, poetic way, turn your mind to Christ. It is the only way to find an anchor in the midst of chaos. To bring these things to mind. To remember who God is and what he has done. To bring it to bear on your circumstances. To remind yourself that he will not leave you. That he is who he said he was. That his promises are true. To find the anchor in the midst of it. And as we turn our minds to Christ, what happens is our hearts are also drawn to Christ. Because this is the one who laid down equality with God to pursue us. And suddenly, Jesus is not just someone who is true and noble. He's someone who is lovely and beautiful and admirable. And suddenly, the work of our mind is invading the reality of our hearts. And we are given to God. And as we are given to God, even in the midst of crazy circumstances, some level of peace begins to well up within us? Does it change the storms of the sea we're sailing on? Not necessarily. But we are reminded that the one who can calm the storms is in the boat with us. He hasn't left. He hasn't gone. We breathe deeper. This is how peace emerges in chaos. Not simply because we say, well, good Christians, they're supposed to be peaceful in bad situations, so I better add peace. No. What you need to do is stop trying to be done with your circumstances and start working to embrace Jesus in the midst of them. Paul says, hey, follow what I've said. And what we find in Paul is he becomes the paramount example of this pursuit of peace, right? He says, I figured it out. I found the secret of contentment. Whether I'm hungry or whether I'm full, whether I'm in plenty or whether I'm in want, I figured it out. And remember, he's writing from prison and he keeps saying weird things like rejoice, be happy, this is great. But if you look back through the whole letter, you figure out that Paul has himself moved through this process of head to heart, to life. You remember in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul draws his attention strongly to the truth of who Jesus is. A famous passage from chapter 2 verse 4 to 11. Jesus, 
who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but willingly set it aside and took on the form of humanity, and not just humanity, but a servant, and, and was willing to not just be a servant, but ultimately be obedient to death, and not just regular death, but death on a cross, that ultimately, at his demise, he would be raised up, would be Lord of all, every knee would bow. What's Paul doing? Renewing his mind. And out of the renewing of his mind, it moves into the affections of his heart. And so we find in Philippians chapter 3, Paul saying things like, listen, I used to think I did all these great things, and now I realize that they're worthless. The only thing that matters to me is being connected to Jesus, knowing him, holding fast to him. He's writing from prison. He's not just in prison. He's probably literally shackled to a Roman soldier. And in the midst of it, he can begin to say things like rejoice. In the midst of it, have peace. This is possible. You can do this. Why? Because his mind is renewed on who Jesus is and what the gospel is. And his heart in the process is given its affections to Jesus himself. And suddenly, this countercultural kingdom ethic that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount comes to life vividly in the story of Paul. Paul says, you can know this same peace that will guard your hearts. The word guard is a vivid Greek language. It's really used of, of troops that would surround a city to prevent attack. The God of peace will guard your hearts and Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment. It's, it's funny, Paul likes to, to mix with Greek philosophy and this word contentment or the secret contentment was, was the aim of all Greek philosophers, specifically the Stoic philosophers. And they had come to believe that contentment was full self-sufficiency. And so this word, in some ways, could be translated self-sufficiency. Paul's saying, I figured out how to be self-sufficient. You know what the answer is? I'm not self-sufficient. <laughs> I need Jesus desperately. I have found the one who is self-sufficient, and I have attached myself to him. Friends, I do not know if you find yourself in a fiery furnace this morning. If you find yourself on a heartbroken voyage to England if you find yourself being pressured from all sides, from enemies and people who oppose you. But I'm not here to give you a trite, God loves you, it'll be okay. I'm here to tell you, I serve the God who stands beside you and says, this is not the world I created for you. And because of the resurrection, the renewal of all things is underway. So hold fast to the one who is renewing all things. You will be anxious in this world, but it does not have to be the final word. You can even stand to your enemies and say, God, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And to an onlooking world, have this crazy peace that passes all understanding an unidentified presence who we rightly call Jesus. Can I pray with you?